Hey, Rifters, welcome to the show. Uh, it's good to be back. Keith Reza with the one and only. Alan Lee. All right. He's getting faster, folks. He's getting faster. Alan, how you doing, buddy? How you doing, buddy? Doing real good. Yeah. We've got a great guest coming on, and uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great, yeah. Uh, I have a couple upcoming shows I should plug. Uh, August 7th at the Rec Room with Dat Fam. Uh, 7 p.m., $20 tickets. And then August 14th at the Rec Room with House Sparks. 7 p.m., $20 tickets. And, Alan, did I tell you I made the Burbank Comedy Festival? Wow, congratulations. Yeah, so from August 15th through August 21st, I'm going to be at Flappers. Very good. Ticket prices vary, but tickets could be caught at www.flappers.com. And then the good date of 9-11, I'm going to be opening up for Ida Rodriguez at the Rec Room. Wow. Yeah, so stand-up's slowly coming back, Alan Lee. Got it. Well, you're a busy guy already. Yeah, you got anything coming up? Any any dates you want to plug? Nope. nope. All right. Any <laughs> well, dates? I don't like I don't like stand up. Oh, you're over stand up. I just I, I just uh... <laughs> no, I'm not, fucker. The things on the fucking frying pan. What? The hell? Oh, okay, good, good, excellent, excellent. <laughs> you're wearing two two things of glasses. That's cool. Well. Like I said, I, I just haven't been able to get In all seriousness, there. why do you wear two? Is it one for, like, seeing up close or, and one for the blare? No, no what it is, is is that you just double double the power, you know, like that. And uh, I can adjust it with different glasses. If I buy one pair, uh, it'll last, but, you know, it can't be adjusted. So it makes your vision way better when you wear two? Oh, it's unbelievable. Wow. But I didn't I know that. One, 150, I could have another at 160. That's 300 powers. Wow. I didn't know that. It's very interesting. You learn something new every day, you know what I mean? You did that when you used a telescope in science class. Oh, that's TV. true, huh? Wow. So did that give you the idea to wear two glasses, or did someone, like, just tell you about that? Yeah, that was, <clears throat> that was part of the idea. Uh, but I was just desperate, and uh, I just took two glasses off the rack. I said, well, let's, I'll wear them both. And I said, damn, look at this. I can uh, see uh, I can see a little period on a page 10 feet away. Uh, like a superhero. It's like, yeah. it's like a show. It's like American gods. I became a god. Holy I, Lord. Yeah, you yeah, brought up a show that we're going to talk about with our next guest. A great show. A great Neil, show. Neil well, guys, you should subscribe, rate, and review right now. Because we are about to rift with Orlando Jones. You've seen Orlando in movies and TV shows like Sleepy Hollow, American Gods, The Replacements, Mad TV, and Mad TV, and one of my favorite films of all time, Runaway Jury with John Cusack. Enjoy. Raise the risk of the Orlando Jones coming up next. You ready, Alan Lee? You got it. All right. You're listening to Razor Rifts. 
with Keith Razor and Alan Lee, right here on LA Talk Radio. Just let him in. Hey. Hey. He's connecting. I see that. Uh. Orlando Jones. Uh. Is he there? It says he's connecting. Yeah, he's right there on the screen. We're, we're... I see him. Ah. Hello, Orlando. Hi, Orlando. Oh, he's, he's putting there. headphones on. Oh, excellent. I love Zoom. <laughs> oh, man. You know, you could uh, tell Orlando about the two glasses thing. Well. I didn't know that. I thought that was pretty interesting. You did? It's just, uh, it's just because I'm too, too cheap to lose uh, my... Uh... My uh, pharmaceutical, I mean, not my pharmaceutical, my, uh, you know, my regular glasses uh, that, uh, so I get these two Dollar Tree, yeah. put them together and I can focus. I'm not making fun, I'm not making fun of you. I seriously did not know that. I, I thought that. If you use a telescope in high school, you did. Oh, this. hey, Orlando. Hey, Orlando. Well, how is everybody? Doing how good. How are you, buddy? No complaints, man. No complaints. Oh, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do raise a wrist, man. Uh, no, no worries. <laughs> so, Orlando, this is the trusty sidekick, Alan Lee. What's happening, Alan? What's happening, Orlando? I can't call it, Pimpin. What's going on with you? <laughs> Alan told me a very fascinating thing because he's wearing two glasses. And tell me if you've ever heard of this. Alan, tell him. Listen, uh, if you don't want to use your, your regular expensive glasses, you go to Dollar Tree and you get one. One is a see. Look, I can adjust the power. I have one's ninety nine. They're both a dollar. I see. Uh huh. I don't care if I lose these. Of course, you know. Look at this man. He's successful. You think what is this? Is stupid. Forget it. Let's just get on with the interview. <laughs> no, because he was telling me it's like a theroscope when you look at stars and stuff. Like it doubles the power. No, Listen, really? he, he, well, he's got he's got superpower across his eyes. There oh, you of go. Course. Yeah, Cyclops, uh, a Marvel web. Hold on one second. My computer is dying. Let me just plug it in. One moment. I apologize. No worries. No worries. No worries. Ah. This guy, he's too much. He's, he's fantastic. In fact, I have a question. <clears throat> it's going to be amazing. And then, uh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, I kind of feel like I should wear my glasses now because all you guys are wearing my our glasses. Sometimes you don't. I don't know why you do or don't. You don't need them. You're lucky. I need them when I drive. Okay. Like, bad. Fine. But uh. Well. No worries. Bangkok dangerous. Alrighty. All right. We're ready to rock and roll. Yes, sir. Let's do it. All right, Orlando. So, uh, a lot, a lot of folks, uh, you know. They didn't know that you wrote on the Sinbad show when you first started. How was that? <laughs> uh, you know what? I think uh, writing gigs are always what they are. Um, I mean, I, I think it's hilarious that people just discovered I've been in the Writers Guild for 35 years. I mean, it's like yeah. 
<laughs> I guess if that's a, a new revelation, it's funny to me. It's certainly not a revelation to the writers' guild. Um, Sinbad was, uh, he was really hot at the time. Yeah. So, and uh, what I remember uh, that made me laugh the most about it is um, Sinbad uh, did this movie, this Western. Uh, it was like a touchtone, Buena Vista. It was like picture. the Cherokee Kid or something, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. And the movie made money. Mm -hmm. And no one thought it would. Everybody yeah. was kind of like, whatever. And the movie thought made money. And, you know, and it's actually, it's a funny, goofy movie. It actually, it works in, in, a, in, a, in an interesting kind of crazy way. But that suddenly meant he was a movie star. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then <laughs> so now if you can imagine a time. Star to a movie star. Right. So, so, so if you can imagine a time when Sinbad is a movie star, but he has a television deal and he'd rather pursue the movie thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But he also is making this much money now because he has a network television show doing stand up. So he can make more on a stage in an hour than he can do anything else. Yeah. So that's so, what he was trying to juggle <laughs> while I was writing his show. So like, how, how is that? Because like, then you went into acting. So the writing, did that open a door for you to get into acting or were you always acting on the side? Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 you know, I had an advertising agency when I was 18 years old that, uh -huh. that I started in that production company. I wrote, produced and was on camera. And then when I went out to Hollywood, my job was as a writer. So then I wrote and produced stuff, you know, various shows, pilots and what have you from, you know, Martin to, you know, Colin Quinn and Mario Joyners to, you know, the, you know, Ben Stiller pilot with Judd Apatow and that sort of stuff. Um, and then um, I think when we were launching FX uh, network, uh, we were uh, developing what people now call reality television. It didn't exist at the time. And that was uh, me and Tom Bergeron and Jeff Probst and Phil Kogan. And we, launched FX out of New York. Uh, so we were launching a cable channel. And so, you know, I, I, I left there and went to Mad TV as yeah. a writer performer, right? So- Where you were Artie Lang's roommate. Uh, yeah, he came to live with me after, you know, sort of the madness happened. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's my dude, man. He, he had a rough ride and, uh, uh, but uh, that's my brother for yeah. sure. Uh, the guy I, uh, I, I opened for Norm McDonald. So him and Artie sure. are like good friends. And yeah. Norm they did a movie like, together back in the day. Yeah. Norm was like, ask Orlando about Artie. I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, uh, we were doing mad TV. So, I mean, that's kind of the funny part, right? So mad TV was sort of launching all these careers for people, but I'd already been in the business and produced, you know, hundred episodes of television and pilots and everything. But the funny part is when you're an actor, everybody talks to you with that actor voice, but they forget that I'd been a successful writer producer. Yeah. <laughs> so when they start that, you know, the actor talk, it was kind of hilarious. Cause I'm like, who the fuck are you talking to? I'm in the room with the studio and the network. Like I have all of the information, like this bullshit you're saying right now is not what's going on right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're not even close to telling me the truth right now. You think right. I, like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Fucking hilarious, dude. So that was kind of the funniest part. Um, and Artie, um, look, the crazy meltdown that everybody wants to talk about is when we were doing this sketch called Babe Watch. Okay. 
It's Babe the Pig in Baywatch. Uh-huh. And Artie is playing Babe the Pig. Yeah. Now, Artie's already a big dude, but your fucking self-esteem cannot be feeling great when you got like 12 teats and a pig costume, yeah. <laughs> right? Cut two, we're on the PCH in a Sebring convertible and bumper-to-bumper traffic trying to get back to set. Artie's in the pig outfit. I'm in the Baywatch outfit, the red shorts, you know, <laughs> playing the hot guy thing. And my dude is snorting cocaine <laughs> off the dashboard, but with the pig nose hanging off to the side. <laughs> oh but we God. didn't bump into bump of traffic, so it ain't like everybody can't see what's going on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so now this bender lasts all through the fucking day. We get back to the hotel. And we're staying in this flea bag motel. It's close to Zuma Beach because, you know, that's Mad TV. We ain't got no money. We're doing these sketches for a nickel, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, all the money was spent on the film crew. Yeah. <laughs> so I wake up in the morning in the hotel room. I'm sharing a room with Herman and Artie. And when I wake up, it smells like I woke up in a bucket of shit. I'm, I'm, I'm the most putrid. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And I hear the following. Boom, 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 housekeeping, housekeeping. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Right. So I'm now trying to, th- I look at the time. I'm late. Artie's gone. David Herman is gone. I find the force of the stench when I get to the bed and pull it back. And Mr. Coke Binge has taken a shit in the bed, <laughs> covered it up, got up and walked out. At some point, that jackass Herman also left, and I'm passed out of sleep from babysitting this motherfucker all night long, and Herman's drunk off his fucking ass, and they oh. left me in the shit room. Bump, 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 bump. <laughs> Housekeeping. And I'm like, oh, shit. I'm about to get blamed for the shit. <laughs> I take my bag. I throw it out the second floor window. It hits an embankment and rolls down the little hill. I now am hanging off the second floor embankment, trying to get my foot on the railing down beneath. I take the shot as I hear the housekeeper come in the door. Oh, it's the meal. What is going on in here? I let go. I flip backwards, boom, hit that band heel, roll down through a couple of cactuses, get fucked up, (laughs) jump in the car, the Chrysler Sebring we rented, get my ass to set to find Herman and this motherfucker drinking whiskey in the white and the lifeguard stand. (laughs) Artie's still on the fucking bender. They are laughing their asses off. So (laughs) you almost got fucked. Dude, let me tell you, I, I have crazy memories, but let, let me just say this for the record. Artie Lang is one of the funniest humans I've ever met in my entire life. And yeah. he has the biggest heart of anyone I know, and I love him. That's my brother. But we have some fun, crazy times together. So, you know, now imagine, remember, on Mad TV, I'm the only cast member that's in the writing room. Yeah. Okay. So that means that all the shit the writers talk, I know about all of it, but I can't give up any information about what's going on with the cast. So all you can do is sit there, but everybody know you know what the fuck is really going on, but all you do is go. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you can't say anything. So that it was, 
you know, a year of that. And that, that was when I was like, okay, I'm sorry, two years of that, two years of that. And then second season, I was the first cast member to leave, but I could leave because they broke the deal in my contract because they didn't want to pay me as a writer anymore. So they had to void my deal. And that's why I was able to leave. And then they yeah. tortured Nicole Sullivan and everyone else who tried to leave the show. So, so you left before you got tortured. So that, that's Well, they couldn't torture me because oh. I had a writing deal and I had an acting deal. Nobody else had one. So oh. if you didn't want me to write anymore, that meant you had to fire me entirely from the show. Oh, that's awesome. And they did. And then yeah. they asked me if I would do season two. And my agreement was, I'll do it as long as it's fun. But as soon as this becomes some bullshit, I I'm just going to go my separate way because I don't want to fight with you. Yeah. So in season two, we got into a, a fight with one another about some silliness. And I was like, see, I don't want to fight. I don't like to fight. So <laughs> I'm going to go my way, uh, you know, and let you guys do your thing. And we agreed and, you know, everything ended wonderfully for me. So I had no beef with it. But everybody else who was on the show, all I heard about was their nightmare. And they were like, how did you get out? And I was like, <laughs> I had a writing and, a, you know, I wasn't just, uh, you know, they didn't discover me as talent. Yeah. You know, certainly not on the writing side, but they did give me a platform to do sketches and comedy, but I wasn't a stand-up comedian. So for me, they gave me the platform to do something that normally only stand-ups get. But now now you do stand-up, though, because I've seen you do stand-up. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I, 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 yeah, it's true. But my point is at the time <laughs> I did see here, here's the thing, dude. The, I was the, like, the, I know I've remember. seen you. <laughs> I didn't start doing stand up until 2007, oh, 2006. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I was writing for stand ups in 1993. Yeah. And I was writing shows for, you know, so you've always had that stand up voice, though. Well, because I've written for stand-up since I was a teenager. Yeah. So because I was writing for stand-ups, that was the case. But I also had a job in Hollywood by the time I was 20. And then I was writing on a different world and I was writing on Martin. And so Martin's a stand-up. I was, you know, I was writing his show, but I yeah. was not writing him as a stand-up. I was writing him as Martin on a television show. Yeah. Right. So exactly. it's a completely different thing. Right. So for, for me, it was the odd part was always... And comedians used to be really pissed because they'd be like, where the fuck did this dude come from? Because he, they're like, he didn't spend 15 years in the comedy club the way every other comedian that you know spent 15 years in the comedy club to get to do movies and television. Right. I did not spend 15 years in a comedy club. I had an advertising agency, then went out and was a writer producer and then, you know, did workshop reality television, then did a sketch comedy show. And then I went into that. So my path was entirely different. Would you say, because like, that's actually a pretty smart path for comics to do like advertising in a way. Like, would you say that was like pretty, that really helped your game? Well, it, I had a business that yeah. wasn't connected to Hollywood. I mean, it was simple. I, I had clients, you know what I mean? So, you know, and I did an ad for Food Lion or McDonald's or Mazda or whomever. There was no agent involved. That was my business, you know. Oh. Um, and so writing that ad and that copy and all of the work that went along with that, that was just what my company did, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I just was also acting at the same time mm -hmm. that, that all of that was going on, right? But I was a kid. Yeah. So 
it was more that I had the ability to do these different things. And so I did them and the sides never talk to each other. People in the television business don't talk to the commercial business. Oh, that's interesting. And people in the movie business don't talk to people in the TV business. Mm-hmm. Just like oh, they don't yeah. talk to people in the gaming yeah. business. They're all separate businesses. Yeah. yeah. So there's no crossover. So for me, the weirdness has always been is like, I'm in all of these businesses as a storyteller talent. But when you get famous, people only talk to you about one, which is the acting side, because they don't realize all the other stuff is going on. Yeah, there's a right? lot of stuff behind the scenes, you know? Well, it's the real job, which is the creative work, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the- when you see the credits on a show or a movie, you know, you see the cast, but you also see the crew. It's like four times as long, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it takes a it takes a village to, you know, unlike, you know, with music, you can get, you know, two people, three people in a, in a studio or in a bedroom and you can, you know, you can do it, right? <laughs> um, with, uh, with Hollywood for a long time, you needed 150, 200 people and, you know, you still needed, you know, certain components to do the, the post process, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That has changed a lot if you look at content on YouTube today because they're doing premium stuff and it doesn't cost the same much amount, but that's technology. Mm-hmm. Now, we, now, that was another question because like when you were starting and stuff, uh, YouTube wasn't really around. It was more about like your, your real and your talent and stuff. Do you think like now YouTube kind of kills artists or it helps them? Look, I see it the, the following way. In the consulting side of my business, I was you know making content for... Um, digital um, and broadcast uh, in 2005. Uh-huh. So um, at that time, I was pretty much alone uh, in, in the space. The, the simple truth of the matter is, is there are fewer companies. There's a smaller number of companies that, that do this. Mm-hmm. And all of these companies are the result of a larger company taking over another company. So you are very far removed from what Hollywood once was, right? Right. Yeah. When you say Comcast bought NBC Universal, last I checked, it was NBC that made the television shows and Universal that made the movies. But if the executives from Comcast bought it and took it over, that means everybody in those posts now are not native storytellers who don't really know as much as all those other people knew about the movie or the television business, right? Yeah, exactly. And then there's a parks business sitting in the middle of that, right? Wow. All right, so what does the Comcast cable folks know about those three businesses I just named for you? Well, they're now in charge of it, right? Wow. So what you've seen is that <laughs> started to happen across the business, but you have to remember there are only three business models. Movies is the banking business. Half the money makes the movie go. Television is the advertising business. That's been the way it's been forever yeah. until the platform business came in, but that's a monthly subscription business. No yeah. different than your cable bill, right? That's true. Yeah. So now you have your your OTT business as they were, the over-the-top service or your, you know, app business. And so what you're watching now is all the big companies has taken over the smaller companies. You're watching content pop from platform to platform. It's on Hulu. It's on Netflix. And all that's happening now is that whomever bought that library now wants you to access that content from their app where you pay them directly X number of dollars a month. And all the old deals are closing. And that's why the content is bouncing around. But ultimately, anything in the 20th library is going to be on Disney Plus's app because Disney Plus bought 20th. And they own pretty much everything, too. They do. But, you know, NBC Universal also owns the core pipelines 
and yeah. also has a tremendous library. And Amazon just bought the old MGM library. So these libraries are going to be scattered around and you're going to see them in various places. And Netflix is making a bunch of content. So they're not so reliant on everyone else's library. Right. So that's all you're watching right now, right? There's not enough time in the day to watch all the stuff that's being made, but all the businesses need the content to feed the truth of their bottom lines. So that's where we are right now. So you're seeing the price of actors being driven down, but the, the price of creating content and franchises is going to be where the real future uh, of the business is. And creating that relationship directly with the audience. Because if I got 100,000 people paying me five ninety nine. What do I care about what else you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Right? $5.99 a month, I'm good. I don't need millions and millions of people. Uh, uh, if you had 10,000 subscribers that are willing to pay you um, $5 every four months, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, that's a, that's a $300,000 a year business direct to your pocket with a 30% uh, off the top coming from an Apple or some subscriber. That's $270,000 in your pocket. That's a real I'll never have to do stand-up again. That's exactly right. So <laughs> that's the new world. That's where we really live now in the content business. The power sort of exists in your hands to not be reliant on Hollywood um, in the same way that you once were. Yeah. Orlando, when you say franchise, could, could, uh, could that be interpreted as like, if you have a show that you put together and then you just get subscribers directly, that's your, obviously, that's your franchise, right? Those people uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. That sounds like a simple question, but, you know, to clarify that. Uh, Look, uh, if you, if you, if you well. want to take a, if you want to take a step back and say, Seth MacFarlane was a guy who had some funny ideas. He had this idea to do this show called Family Guy. He created that show. Okay. He started making those animated assets. Then it became Family Guy, not just a television show, but merchandise and gaming yeah. contracts and all sorts of other ancillary revenue that's made, even when they're not making Family Guy. A check's still coming in the door, like with Batman, like with Marvel franchises, like with DC franchises, like with Platinum Universe franchises. So whenever you're creating something, you make the thing. If it becomes successful, the audience tends to tell you how they would like to see that thing iterate. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. All that's the creation of a franchise. That intellectual property now is a franchise. That's a complete business. That's a 360 business there if you really look yeah. at it. So if you've got 10,000 people who love what you're doing, who are willing to pay X number of dollars, why do you need millions? Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. true. Uh, I mean, in order to survive, you can in effect, become a storyteller with an audience. And you can grow that audience because if they really like you, they'll tell their friends to come check yeah. you out. So sure. getting to 20,000 isn't as hard as one might think. So when you really think about storytelling and content and the tools that are available to you today, you can decide you know, what type of storyteller you want to be. Yeah. And if you want to try and create something with the tools you have in front of you, just like Robert Rodriguez did when he made El Mariachi oh, for $7,000. I'm not talking about anything new. <laughs> That's a great example. That explained it right there. <laughs> Nothing new is being discussed here. I'm simply saying that yeah. there are no gatekeepers anymore. That world is long gone. You are famous and, and fame, like, like no one's going to do what Michael Jackson did. No one's going to sell 45 million discs anymore. Right. Because who is buying a disc? Okay, so that the idea of making all that money from selling 45 million of these things for 10 bucks or better is gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's right? all on Spotify too. 
it's Spotify, it's yeah. YouTube music, but it's music primarily being launched from television, from yeah. Idol, mm -hmm. from X Factor, from mm -hmm. Got Talent. All those artists signed to contracts, all touring, all those franchises globally creating artists that are all famous within a certain region, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Okay, so that's an entire business driven on creating a music uh, venture ultimately, where you find these stars and then monetize these stars because you found them and you made them, now you own them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kelly Clarkson, Fantasia, what have you. So I, I you know, uh, you know, Carrie Underwood. So I point this out to say, that's the music business now, isn't it? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so there, you, there we go, right? So now, so when you say, oh, 40, Michael Jackson selling CDs, they they bear no relation yeah <laughs> to what we're talking about right now either way michael jackson's that. still gonna stay rich for being dead you know what i mean like he's still My, michael it. jackson was smart in his business he bought the beatles catalog you well, know yeah, I mean, he did so michael jackson wasn't just an, an astonishing talent as an artist michael jackson also was an astonishing businessman as was his father who built that entire franchise people act like that didn't happen but He's an extraordinarily smart man. I mean, at the end of the day, he got the Beatles catalog. Yeah. So <laughs> I want That's crazy. I wanted to ask a question about a writing technique in your perspective, because I, I, I take script writing and my teacher told me, like, when you write scripts, you write for actors in mind, even though they're not necessarily going to read it or whatever. Like, it helps you build the story. Do you ever use that technique or like, how do you? Get into yeah, it. Uh, look, that's why I think diversity casting is so funny. Yeah. Because every writer sits down with something in their head. I mean, it could be a composite of a bunch of different people. Is that mm -hmm. not what the gaming industry does? Go grab this, kind of make a composite off of this character based on this, this, and this. So to use these attributes from previous characters that they light and build a prototype by which they drop into a game, right? Everybody does some version of that in their character creation, right? Sure. Uh, they think of something, it's an aunt, it's an uncle, it's something they saw, it's something that mm -hmm. tweaked, whatever it is, you you use something as your source material for what it is that you're, you're starting to put into creation. But the truth of the matter is it's a collaborative process, as I said. So as the casting director, as the studio, as the network, as other writers, as other creators get involved, that vision is gonna have to change and shift. But Someone has to be there to at least hold down an understanding of what the core vision was, but that's very difficult to do when someone else is funding for and paying for your vision, right? right? So yes, that process happens, but, you know, but that process is not the final process. You follow what I'm saying? Because yeah. at the point at which you give it to fans, fans decide what they liked and what they responded to and what was important to them and what wasn't important to them. And they don't care what you thought. Yeah. So when fans decide that this character is a fan favorite, mm -hmm. and as a writer, I start to write towards that character because it's not my story anymore. It belongs to all of us now. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And what goes wrong with all these shows very often is the person had a very particular vision in their head as the storyteller and they're not willing to give up their vision. So they keep trying to force their vision down the throat of the audience who is interested in something else in their vision. Yeah. Right. Spe speaking of fan favorites, you've been on t two TV shows that I... Actually, three, because I loved you in Rules of Engagement. But 
uh, fan favorites, Sleepy Hollow and American Gods. You know, so you sure. were a fan favorite. Yeah. 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 So. Well, and, and, and look, and it was weird to be in the position of having on, on some level to be defending the studio and the network because, you know, all of the academic fans that <laughs> were calling them racist. Because yeah. they were saying, because the show got, literally because in season one, the show was very diverse, right? It was super fun. It was crazy. It was a fun ride. It was super diverse. Yeah. And in season two, you were suddenly following Ichabod Crane's family. And in season one, those were not characters that you cared about or followed. Yeah. So after having this massive season, and it's the biggest show Fox has had since 24, mm -hmm. the fans were like, why are you now talking to me about Ichabod Crane's family. What happened to the show I was watching? Yeah. Sure. Right? And that's totally legitimate. But if you're the studio, you go, well, I bought Sleepy Hollow and Ichabod Crane's the star of Sleepy Hollow, so we're going to follow Ichabod Crane's family. Yeah. You're paying no attention <laughs> to what the fans are watching. <laughs> yeah. Right? So it's that juxtaposition, the difference between how the business saw it how the business perceived it through its own blinders and how the audience saw it. And that collision happens on a regular basis. You know, yeah. I, I've been a part of that collision many times, but I'm not the only one or special in that regard. And, and, and you totally can see the situations where it gets embraced and you can totally see the situations where they try and shut it down. And now more often than not, the show implodes. Yeah. Right. So, uh, my dad just my dad just texted me and he said, make sure you tell Orlando, thank you for drumline. <laughs> oh man, it was, what a fun one. Thank Dallas Austin for drumline. Really? I was, I was happy to bring his story to life. Really? Um, yeah. That's his life story actually. Oh really? Oh. Yeah. Dallas Austin's a famous music producer out of Atlanta. Um, and when he was in high school, um, he, as a freshman was beating all of the seniors because his brothers were all a part of that drum line. So he knew all the cadences and he was a musical prodigy. So we moved the story from high school to college and uh, Nick Cannon is basically playing Dallas Austin, super producer. Oh. Um, and for me, I was just wanting to tell a story about integrity because otherwise it's kind of, you know, on the van, off the van, on the van, off the van, you know, drum battle, drum battle, but what's it about? So for yeah. me, it's just about choices and integrity and and not doing those movies because the studio really wanted me to do like Officer and a Gentleman, you know, right? Uh, you know, where you're yelling at the guy, you know, mayonnaise, you know, they wanted that <laughs> whole uh, thing. And I was like, I, that seems weird to me to do like the guy who's perfect, who's yelling at the guy. I'd rather <laughs> do the guy who's real, who fucked up himself. Yeah. And who's like, yo, I'm, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, but I know this seems more right than this. Make a choice, young man. I just, I wanted to tell that type of story. Unfortunately, they let, they let me do it. So um, I was, I was happy about that one. And then, you know, Zoe and Nick were able to, to really use that as a launching pad to the, to the careers they had. So nothing made me happier than that. Cause you know, love Zoe and love Nick. And uh, then the question I had for you is, are you sick of the song? I will survive. I mean, at first I was afraid. I mean, I was petrified. <laughs> no, not thinking I could really ever live without it by my side. And then I spent some, you know, weird nights thinking how it did me wrong. 
<laughs> you know, I and I grew strong, and I learned how to, how you know, you know, get over questions and move along. And and now I'm 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 back, you know, I'm fucking out of space. You know? <laughs> I just came here to do this interview so I could see this look upon your face. I mean, I, 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 sh I, I should have left the interview, and I, you know, I should have made you laugh and pee if I'd known in one second that's the shit you was gonna ask me. Go on now, go. Let's, um, you know, let's walk out a door, and you know, let's, you know, let's turn this around now. You know, I, I hope I'm still welcome. I'm, I may not be anymore. Weren't you the one that asked me this shit about I will survive? You thought I'd crumble? You thought I'd lay down and die? Oh, no, not I. <laughs> uh, we, we asked Faye, uh, Faye Love that same question. He's like, I was sick of that song that day. Oh, listen, nobody wanted to do that scene. Okay, nobody. Yeah. That scene was, that was, that was me pulling teeth is what that scene was. <laughs> And I had the fucking flu. Yeah. Uh, so literally, I I remember I was completely hoarse. I had the flu. I took a couple of shots of NyQuil. I went to bed. <laughs> I woke up. I still felt like shit. <laughs> I got there. The choreographer who shall remain nameless, I think was on a coke binge the night before or something. <laughs> There was no choreography. I had never seen her before, but apparently she was the choreographer. <laughs> I don't know where this lady came from. And she started doing, like, I don't know what she was doing. And everybody in the scene, and it's the entire cast, yeah. basically goes, fuck that. And they go sit down in the jail scene. Yeah. And they're looking at me like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and I'm like... <laughs> You motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. So I say to him, I, I, you know what? Not everybody knows any fucking dance. Right. So it's going to have to be the electric slide because it's the dance everybody makes you do at every fucking wedding. Yeah. And it's the easiest one to learn, too. So I was like, and it's one, if somebody else is doing it, you can at least get in and shuffle yourself back and forth and not look like a complete jackass, right. which is all Keanu. That's all Keanu cared about. Keanu was like, I don't want to do this dumb shit at all. I don't like this dumb ass fucking scene. And uh, I'm sit over here, uh, have fun Orlando. And hold on, are we ready? All right, and action, rolling, uh, action. And uh, you watched me pull people up into the electric slide. Yeah, singing. I will survive. Uh, I thought that was the best scene, though. Like it was funny. It brought everyone together. I was cracking up. <laughs> Look, that was the problem they had. The problem was the scene worked, yeah. uh, and now we were out on a press tour, and everybody's asking them about this fucking scene in this song, and they hate the song, and they hate the scene, and the scene was an add-on. It wasn't in the original script. Yeah. Mark Steven Johnson came in and did a, a pass on the script before he became, you know, the guy at Marvel. Right. And he added that scene for me. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, that's where that scene, that really, that scene came from. So, uh, you know, you know, kudos to them, you know, for him as a storyteller, you got to give the guy credit. And that's where uh, John Favreau's Marvel contact came from because Mark Steven Johnson was there on this, on this, on the scene working. Oh man, that's how all that happened. Wow! So, wow. so you could be an Iron Man six or something in the future, right? You know, Fav has told me, or rather, Phazon. 
Faison has told me that Fav had wanted me to do, I think, uh, Cheadle's role in it. Uh, oh, no, no, uh, Terrence Howard's role in, in, in it uh, at, at one point. And who knows that, that I, I certainly didn't hear about that. But Faison and John are really close because yeah. of placements, obviously. So, look, man, I have great memories of that movie, man. And the time and the cast was extraordinary. I don't care what anybody says. That cast was fucking... I mean, funny. You know, yeah. I'm I'm proud of the movie. I'm proud of how it kind of managed to find its audience and stand the test of time. And they've made a thousand football movies since then with Adam Sandler and all these other people. But somehow the replacements, you know, still manages to kind of hit people in the heart in a in a way that's special. So I mean, I I love the movie because I had a ball with Favreau and Faison and you know yeah. Keanu and David Denman and you know Michael Jace. You know, you know, an incredible brother. Yeah, I mean, just. It was just a great time, man. Uh, I, I have fond. T- I, the joke I, I tell now is people always come up to me and they talk about the scene where I'm saying, Coach, it looks like I, you know, I just jacked off an elephant. <laughs> yeah, where they put the glue on your hands. To right. Cut- <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, obviously, I, you know, I, it wasn't in the script, right? So, uh, you know, you know, I, you know Clifford Franklin stuff, you know, like the one man cold. I'm the only one catching it because I'm the only one coming down with it. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, writing shit for and putting it in the movie. So I've been doing that for so long because none of that stuff was in the movie. You know, I, I hated the ones they cut out, you know, the shit where he's at the line and he's like, I'm gonna call you chili because I'm about to eat that ass up. And then he takes off, runs a slant pattern. They throw the pass and he drops it. <laughs> and then he walks back in and lines up against the same guy. <laughs> My favorite is like when you're like, after the game, can I get your autograph? He's like, you what? You got it. You're like, oh, I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dude, my, my favorite is seeing a guy get off of a bus to a protest who doesn't even have luggage. He has box a box with twine wrapped around it. Yeah, that's who he is when he arrives at the NFL. <laughs> the next one game win later, he is talking about himself in the third person, like like Carl Malone back in the day. And that was my favorite part about it is watching that journey. Right, somebody get success and watch it immediately go to their head and kind of how they become. Uh. I want to respect your time, but I do have three more questions. Is it okay if I, I snag uh, these? Sure, go, go right ahead. Okay. I wanted to talk about the Orlando Jones show. That was your talk show. <laughs> okay. Uh, how is that? Because I know it only lasted a season, but, like, the format was really cool. It had the couches, a studio audience, and Jennifer uh, Love Hewitt. Wow. Like, Yeah, it was a fun one. I got thrown a really interesting challenge, man. Um I think I had literally just finished Drumline, and uh, and then I think I was, I was just doing Biker Boys with my buddy Reggie uh, Reggie Bythewood and and Lawrence Fishburne, and um, and they were like, "Hey, we'd love for you to create a talk show," and I was like, "I really don't want to do it," and they were like, "It would be incredible." So they set up this meeting with Peter Churn, and I go over there, and suddenly I got to pitch, you know, the big boss under Rupert Murdoch, what late night would look like. Uh, and I'm like, look, I'll de- I'm going to design a set, but I think ultimately it should feel like you're in late night <laughs> and, you know, and it should be irreverent. Like everything, it, it all feels like I'm watching my grandparents television show in late night. You know I mean? It's all the desks with the sofa and they all ask the right type of questions. You know what I mean? So I was like, I, I wanted to do something that felt 
more like I was really pushing the envelope and, and they said yes. And then they were like, look, um, we had a disaster with Chevy Chase last time. So we're gonna put you on FX and then you can show us what the show is. And I'm like, yeah, but FX has no shows. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think they just had gotten the shield. So my lead in was gonna be like an infomercial. Right. <laughs> and, and they were like, show us what the show is. So, you know, I, I uh, got together with Dallas Austin uh, uh, was the guy and uh, DJ Ruckus, who's now, you know, one of the top DJs in the world, grabbed them and they became my, my music sort of thing. And we, we put Kanye on, who was his first television performance on the show. We put David Banner on, we put Maroon 5 on. Um, all of those bands got their television break on the show. So, you know, we pushed the envelope as hard as we could. And, um, and then um, they were like, you guys don't have a big audience, so we can't move you over to Fox. And we were like, my lead in is an infomercial. <laughs> on FX that has one show. What do you mean I don't have a big audience? You you haven't marketed the show at all. It's not my fault that right. the audience isn't huge. An audience is showing up after an infomercial to watch my show Yeah, with no marketing. And it's my fault that only a half million people are coming. You only have a million coming to watch your hit show. Right. And they were like, well, you see, and I was like, you know what? Let me go back to the movie television. I'll go write and produce stuff over here. Thank goodness I kept my advertising, um, you know, and marketing business the entire time. So I would always be like, you know what? I'm going to go do this. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the Orlando Jones show. But what an incredible time, man. I got to work with some, you know, some really creative geniuses. Tommy Blancha, who did all the crazy hit shows on um, uh, Adult Swim, yeah. was my head writer. Wow. Uh, Ali Leroy, who went on to create Everybody Hates Chris, yeah. uh, was making uh, and directing all the content. He became a director writer uh, on the show. So, you know, uh, the guy who went and ran Wanda Sykes show was my showrunner, Eddie Feldman. So the team of people that came off of it and then the stuff that we went on to do, man, is, you know, I'm, I'm, I was proud of that team, man. We did, we did some fun shit together. Oh, that's awesome. And then uh, my second question is you have experience of what it's like being the guy, being the sidekick, and then being a guy who just shows up for a scene. How do you transition to each of that? those different roles does it depend on the script or does it just depend on the the views that you're storytelling it uh, I, I think for me it's always you know i've never wanted to be doing the same thing over and over again i've always wanted to create characters that people responded to and i've always sort of taken a pride particularly coming off a show like mad tv and and having you not necessarily even recognize me sometimes where you're yeah. like i didn't was that, oh, that's what that was. Oh, got it. Um, and in order to do that, people have to not know when you're going to pop up. Yeah. Uh, and that means you kind of have to choose based on the opportunities that allow you to create the type of characters that you want to create. So, you know, you know, I'm a firm believer that there are no small roles, nor are there any small actors. Um, even if you're looking at the slave ship on American Gods, that scene doesn't work without the work of uh, confidants who plays the slave praying to a Nazi. It is the beauty and the tone of his voice and his prayer and the way he sets that stage 
that helps a Nazi shine. You can't pull them apart. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's like telling your favorite song, we're going to get rid of the bass line and the guitar, but this part right here, oh, you know what I mean? It's like, it's all a part of it. So that's kind of how I think of it. So it doesn't matter if it's my boy, David, the company, and he's calling me because he's like, yo fam, I want you to come do House of D and it's a small role, but I want it to be this, you know? And I'm like, all right, you know, you want me to come play this pimp with Erica Badu, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but, you know, I also know that's not who David Duchovny is, right? So right. He, he doesn't see me in that capacity, right? <laughs> so I'm like, yo, man, okay, sure. Let's, you know, I'll, I, I got a day I can give you. I mean, I don't have a week I can give you or two weeks yeah. unless you've written something worth my time. But do I have a day or I can give you? Yeah, you know, I'll come play with you and Robin Williams and we'll have a great time. Yeah. And I want to meet Robin anyway. So, and it's all love, Dave. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so for me, that's what that's like, you know, and, and, you know, I kind of have had the ability to build those type of relationships with showrunners where I popped up on shows because me and the showrunner or the writers and I knew each other from, you know, whatever we did together, or sometimes me and an actor like Jennifer Love Hewitt and I met um, because we hosted the Pro Bowl for the NFL. Yeah. And then we became friends and then I met her family and that whole thing. So, you know, we hung out. So, you know, you, you kind of meet people through the process and, you know, because you had a, you know, cool time. They're like, Hey, will you come do this or that? And you find yourself, you know, doing interesting, crazy, crazy things like that. So uh, that, that's always been fun for me. And then my last question for you is if you could remake any of uh, the movies or shows that you've done with the same <laughs> script, but different, like different choices what what would it what would it be oh wow you know i really try not to second guess my choices man because i made different choices on different takes and you're seeing what the editor wanted you to see not necessarily right. what i wanted you to see and i don't have any control over that yeah so uh as an actor i try and be true only to the moment right because the moment is the thing i have control over yeah Everything else doesn't belong to me, but the moment, that one, that's mine. And so I really put my energy, my energy there and, and take a step back and allow the director, the producers, the storytellers who are hopefully guiding me through the process, right, um, to, to do what they do. But let me just put this caveat on it. It's so important to understand how messed up the process is while you're trying to achieve that goal. Right. Because like you said, you have something in mind when you're writing. Yeah. So when they were writing evolution, they weren't thinking that it was going to be a black guy and a white guy. They were thinking <laughs> of two white guys. That movie's awesome though. <laughs> but then you cast a black guy in the role, right? But the responsibility to tell, to make that character come to life and for that character to seem culturally relevant, real, in order for black people to see it and go, I recognize that black guy, <laughs> right? Yeah. No one ever did a pass on the script to make that part happen. Every actor of color, every female, you see roles where they flipped it from a guy to a girl, but women are entirely different creatures, right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Right? So the way they would approach something might not be at all in the same viewpoint as the way a man was because there's no female storyteller involved in the game in the first place, then that female character just is kind of a prop because no one ever came in and made that character uh, come to life, right? Yeah. 
yeah, that yeah. got dropped off to that female actress to make you like her without really any help. <laughs> and so I want to point that out because there's always that part of it that feels that way, but trying to create characters in that type of space and work with people that only happens because you and your other castmates and other people kind of get involved and help that process come to life. Right. Yeah. And when you see that happen with somebody like Duchovny and Julianne Moore and Sean William Scott and Dan Aykroyd and all the people who are just having fun together with each other on evolution, the movie starts to take on a life of its own, no matter what, because of what's happening amongst the artists. And so I really want to circle that because it's that experience, no matter what the final product was, it is that fucking experience that I remain grateful for and happy about. And that on every project I'm happy I had, because I've never went into a project and had a shit time with any of those people, yeah. like ever. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't have a bad time with Tom Cruise on Magnolia or John C. Riley. I mean, we had a great time. So, you know, those late nights and the crazy stuff, I mean, you know, <laughs> is, is the stuff I live for, man. So uh, it's it's yeah. been an incredible journey, man. I'm just super grateful, man. Thank you for the time and the questions. Thank All you. right. Alan, well, you got any last second things to say to Orlando? On the same note, which has been very helpful to me, uh, that Orlando was uh, referring to uh, ensemble and improv, uh, that, that whole group of people melding together. Uh, I was just want to ask him personally, did, did you come to a certain level in performing? Uh, like, did you have an acting coach at any point or was it a, a mishmash of your own talent and, the, and working in ensembles? Uh, were you just you know, etched out yourself through working in that way with improvs and in ensemble? Or did you have uh, training sometimes earlier on? You know, we're, we're always looking for <laughs> acting teachers. I am one uh, acting teacher after another. What? <laughs> <laughs> I never, I never had an acting coach that sure. for me, it didn't start that way to be really honest with you, man. Tell me. I, um, I, I had a teacher, her name was Gladys Robertson. Okay. And she taught public speaking. Okay. And she wow. was the first teacher that cursed at me. Wow. Uh, and it, and it got my attention because she did. And uh, she got me to join the debate team. And I was doing dramatic and humorous interpretations. So I was doing things like uh, uh, the Butter Battle book uh, by uh, Dr. Seuss, or I was doing uh, you know, Nigger by Dick Gregory. And I was performing these pieces, right? Sure. Um, sure. And her the work of her you know creating all the characters and doing that um that work um was was extremely beneficial in the process and then as i started writing um mm. i quickly understood that what's funny coming out of my mouth ain't funny coming out of your mouth mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was having Oh. really writing mentors. I had giants, you know I mean? I got to sit at the feet of Jim Burroughs, you know, responsible for yeah. directing and making Taxi, you know what I mean? I, I got to sit at the feet of, you know, really talented storytellers, writers and producers, you know, sure. remember if it wasn't for Bill Cosby, I wouldn't have been on a different world mm -hmm. with Susan Fales and Debbie Allen. Sure. Um, 
you know, you know, really sitting at the feet in uh, feet of, you know, Gary Miller, the guy who created, you know, like first and 10, the guys who did night court. And, you know, I mean, all oh of these God, night court, one of my, right. So, you know, I got to sit with all of these incredible writers, have them take me under their wing. And then you got to remember I'm a writer in the process, yes. Yes. learning the process on the biggest night of television history. Cosby. Yeah. 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 Wow. Cheers. Oh boy. Wings. Mm-hmm. No, no. What am I missing? No, Cosby, A Different World, Cheers, Wings, L.A. Law, Dan oh, Rather, 40 million people. No one changes the channel. I'm entering into the business being mentored by these people. So I'm getting an opportunity to watch Halle Berry's audition. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm watching people come in and Leela Rashawn, Loretta Devine. I'm, wow. you know, I'm watching all of this incredible wow. talent. And then I start writing for that talent on shows like Rock and writing for Ben Stiller and people like that. So I really got the benefit of, of, of working in such diverse environments and having to, to flex my muscle in different ways Sure. But I got to write for this stand-up. Okay, now I got to write this speech for myself. Okay, now I got to write this copy. Okay, now I got to try and punch up my lines in this movie because they're giving me license to do that. Right. right? They're encouraging yeah. me to, to do my, okay, oh, you're going to let me do this. Okay, great, right? Yeah. So I, I was so busy as, as just a nerd trying to take this character and put it together and make it make sense and blah, blah, blah. And whomever let me do that, um, is the people who I, you know, mm-hmm. I gravitated towards because they let me do the thing. I did. And I, I kind of didn't pay any attention to any of the stuff. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I never was in the acting coach process because I had the luxury of being able to have mm-hmm. mentors and a big, massive stage. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, I, I point out to people, you know, I was 20, 21 years old, man. I was a kid. Sure, sure. But, you know, I'm watching, you know, uh, this is the last thing I'll tell you. Imagine this for a moment. I don't know where I am. Good morning, my lady. My daughter just woke up. Oh. Um, oh. Are you coming over here? Give me one second. I'll be done in one moment, okay? Well, I apologize. Are no worries. Good morning. I'll be I'll be right back in one second. Oops. Well, we'll we'll let you go. I mean, so um, just to wrap up. Oh my goodness, everything is ringing all of a sudden. I apologize. We went a little over. I'm so I know, sorry. It's all good, man. So the the point in sort of wrapping up all the madness is that Roseanne and a different world mm-hmm. were all in the same lot mm-hmm. at Carsey Werner. Right. Yeah. And they had a chef that would make the food for everybody. So when you were hanging out, I'd be hanging out with Chuck Lorre mm-hmm. uh, and and Eddie Gordetsky and all those guys who went on to do, you know, they're, I think they're doing Bob Agavashu now on CBS, but Dharma and Greg and uh, Two and a Half Men and, and all of that madness uh, is, is kind of what came into their life. So yeah. wait one second, my lady. Wait one second. Uh, oh, what? Uh, my late my daughter has joined us. Uh, but my okay. point we is, don't, is that we don't promote coming into that experience so and having all of that as an opportunity to learn and having all those people to learn from yeah. was yeah. like 
for me, a huge part of the maturation process. So did I have acting teachers? No, but I had, I was around all those people on set in a different world, watching them work with people. So I feel like I got kind of something better than that. Oh, you did. Right? (laughs) I got something kind of extraordinary and, and, and beautiful and strange. So I don't want to take credit for it as if it was all me. I kind of want to honor the, 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 the people who poured love into me because I didn't, you know, Debbie Allen treated me like I was one of her long lost children, but she treated everybody that way. So, you know, I can't even name the number of people she mentored. You absorb it like a sponge. I was nurtured and loved by a black lady who understood, you know, uh, that it could be a difficult transition for a kid from South Carolina to pop up in Hollywood. And I had Susan Fails and, you know, and Deborah all, and I had a, uh, hold on, and I had a couple of white ladies and some black ladies and some black, I had a, I had a community of people who, who gave a fuck about me, man. So I was, I was, I was blessed in that regard uh, coming into the business. So yeah, I'm oh, grateful for it. Orlando, thank you so much for doing this. I, I want you thank to have you. fun the rest of the day with your daughter and have a great day. Thank you. That's the word to work, the world. Oh, thank us. you, man. Thank you for taking great the time, gents. Uh, we are out of here. We got stuff to do. Gotta all right. Have a great day, Orlando. Thank you. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Appreciate oh, it. Wow, that was the interview with Orlando Jones. Subscribe, rate, and review. Alan Lee, how was that, buddy? That was great. Let me tell you something. I um, didn't know whether I wanted to. to uh, I had that question down as, as the one that I would use. I had three questions. And I said, you know, I really want to ask him that question, you know. And I, I said, my God, you know, with all that he's done, is he going to name some, you know, a teacher, you know, that, my God, that answer was spectacular because it's a complete true answer. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic advice. Yeah. I mean, you know, look at the, in other words, if you look at the comics you, you've hung out with Norm, Jay Moore, uh, uh, what's the one that anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, uh, all of them, Pablo, you know, anyway, our guests, and you want to know something? I appreciate this so much because what he said, I've been able with you, my friend, to hang out with all these named people. And I'll tell you something, it's affected me. Yeah. It has affected me like you wouldn't believe. And he I feel just, like I feel like it's helped me being a better comedian and a better person just by interviews like this. Yeah. So well, subscribe and review, guys. Alan, you got anything coming up or no? Uh, let me think for a moment. No. All right. We'll see you guys next week. We'll on see Razor you next week. Thank you all. You're listening to Razor Riffs with Keith Razor and Alan Lee right here on LA Talk Radio. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcast. Give us some feedback. Good, honest, terrible, doesn't matter. Also, follow us on social media. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Razor Riffs. I am also on Stereo if you would like to chat with me there. www.stereo.com slash KeithRaza. And on Cameo, www.cameo.com slash KeithRaza. If you enjoyed the show, please. Send us a donation on the Anchor app. We really do appreciate it, and we'll rift with you again soon.